Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is in the middle. You know what? We'll back up just a few verses so we can get a context. This is the middle, as you probably know, of the creation story. This is the biblical account creation. Dale talked about that last week. If you didn't listen to it, it's not up yet, but it will be up on the, on the website. Uh, it'll be really good for you to listen to. And then on the sixth day, well, we'll start back. Uh, verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have you ever had, have you ever woken up in the morning and you had a dream and you can't remember what the dream is? Like right when you're waking up, like you remember, you're like, Oh, oh, and then it's gone. And then you're like, man, I, I, can't, I can't remember what the dream was. But it, w- it was cool. Like, I don't remember. It was, you have some sense of what the dream was about, but you can't remember. So you're, you're like trying to rack your brain. And you're like, man, what, what was that? I, you have a sense that you dreamed something, but you can't quite get your finger on it. You can't quite remember what it is. I read a book one time that the guy described this sense, this inside humanity from the moment that you are born. We, he called it, you have a sense of a memory, of an echo, of a voice. I just think that's beautiful. It's like poetry. Listen, listen to it again. He said there's like a sense of a memory, of an echo, of a voice. It's like a dream that you've waken up from, but you just can't remember what it was about. There is this sense in humanity that, that there must be more. There's this mankind is haunted by otherness, by the sense that that there's a dream that we've all woken up from and we just can't quite remember what it was. There's this sense that there's another way of living, there's another way of being, there's another way of living life, and if I could just get there, things would be different. And so we we spend our lives trying to find what that thing is. 
some, some of us just have this sense that one day things will be made right. Like one, one day, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start eating right one day. Uh, one day I'm just going to wake up and I'm going to want to start working out. One day I'm going to uh, be less sarcastic or I'm going to be a better person. I'm not, I'm not going to get quite as angry. This is sort of sense that this one day I'm going to wake up and things will be different. And then other people are strivers. They're workers. They're like, I, things are not the way they should be, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. They're goal setters. They're checklisters. They're, I can get there from here. They're the achievers in life. And they're the ones that stand above the rest of us and said, hey, I did this. But yet, there's, even at that moment, we hear stories of people who reach the pinnacle of their um, of their field, the pinnacle of their industry, the pinnacle of whatever they've been striving to, and they get to the top, and they just still have the sense that it's just not enough. There's something else. That something else is what theologians call the image of God. We read it in this, in this section. It said, when verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God put this imprint whenever he created man very different than all the other animals, very different than all the other plants and every other part of creation. It says that he made them in his image. He, he crafted something different about human beings that, that mark us different than everybody else. And that, and that is that, that haunting part inside <clears throat> us. Have you ever thought about... Um, the sense of justice. But we have this thing, Sophia, our daughter, she's five years old now. And so um, she started to say the words, it's, that's not fair. Have you guys ever run into that with your kids? Or where this, is, this is new territory for us. But, you know, this sort of sense that, hey, you, what you were telling me to do or what I have to do right now, that's not fair. But you know what? We didn't have to sit down and teach her about fairness. There's just this sense that's built inside humans that there, that there should be justice, that there should, things should be fair. When we look around and we see somebody is being mistreated by somebody who's more powerful, we say, that's not right. That has to be stopped. But if you think about it, it's difficult, that's difficult to explain unless you believe and understand that we were made in the image of God. Because if we just were products of evolution, then the rule should be survival of the fittest. And so the weak should be preyed upon by the stronger and done away with. But there's this sense that that's not right. So we see it and we say, that should be stopped. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's this sense that there's this thing called justice. This fairness, this sense of rightness. And, and yet, even though we say that, that isn't right, that should be taken care of. Yet, when oftentimes when we know what's right, <coughs> we don't do that, do we? And it could be something that's like really wrong and really like, like you know you shouldn't fill in like something like that you think is really bad that you have done. 
I, or you continue to do. I know I should not do that, but I still do it. I can't stop myself. Or maybe it's something that's not necessarily, you know, right or wrong, but it's just, again, like, you, you know, you know I should change my lifestyle. I should change what I'm eating or how I'm eating it or how I'm exercising or how I'm not exercising, but you, you know it, but you just can't do it. You can't get there. The, 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 here's the problem. The line of justice doesn't run between them and us. It's not saying, hey, those people over there, they're preying on the weaker people and they should not do that. That's wrong. And that's the line between us and them. We're the just ones. We're the right ones. And they're the wrong ones. The problem is the line runs down through each of us in the middle of us. And so though, though we know that things aren't right, aren't fair, we are still willing participants in them even though we know that that's not right. Justice is something that's difficult for anthropologists, people who study human nature. It's difficult for them to explain. They can't quite figure out why should humans care about what's right and wrong if, it, if the order of the day is survival of the fittest. It doesn't make sense. There's a longing. There's the, a, a sense of a memory, of an echo, of a voice. That voice that created the heavens and earth, that voice that breathed out of whose mouth, breathed the breath of life into the soul of man in the very beginning. We were programmed to be attuned to that. And yet there's this sense of a separation that we have a sense of a memory of an echo of that voice. There's another longing that humans have, that anthropologists have difficulty understanding why we have them, is this sense of, of our longing for spirituality. This, this desire or this sense. Even, even, let's say there's nothing other than this material world, all right? This is it. This is, this is all there is. Anthropologists can't quite understand why do we long for something else? Why does every culture on the face of the earth have some sense of religion? Some sense, even if not today, in its past, some sense of spirituality, that there's something else out there. And we have explained it a lot of different ways. The world is floating on the back of a turtle. That's a, that's a real belief. Some people believe the world is floating around on the back of a turtle. There's some people believe that this sense of... Um, of reincarnation, that, that, that uh, there's this, uh, this sense of fairness that's governing that if I do right today, then I will, when I die, I come back as something better. If I do poorly, I just keep on going down in the opposite direction. There's this sense of something else. We explain it a lot of different ways. The, the Greeks had their mythological structure. The Romans had theirs. Every society, every culture, even if not today, at some point in its history has had some sort of way to explain the otherness. The, the sense of that there's something else out there beyond just what we see. What we see, sense and feel. Because, and it's hard to explain why would we have that longing. C.S. Lewis said, the fact that you have a thirst for water, we see that there is water. 
that, 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 you, that, that people hunger, we see that, they, that there is such a thing as food that our bodies need. The fact that you, we have, as human beings, sexual desires, it, it's only explained by the fact that there is, a, that, that we have a sexual appetite, a sexual life. And he says our desire for something spiritual, something greater, a desire for some kind of explanation that goes above and beyond what we see and feel and taste and touch here explains that there must be something else. There must be another element out there. It's difficult to explain. There's this sense that's built inside us. We may explain it different ways. We might have looked at different traditions and different religions to explain it, but there's this sense inside of, of us of a memory, of an echo, of a voice that we were created for somebody, someone else. There's the sense there of something else. There's something else that anthropologists had trouble um, really describing. Well, they have a reason to describe this. Unless that doesn't even make sense. They, they, have, they have reasoning, um, but it doesn't quite answer all the, all the questions. And, and that is that we as humans... We desire relationships. We desire a sense of community. We desire a group of people that we belong to. I, I don't know, um, I was having a conversation with somebody um, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about, you know, what, what was the greatest sitcom of the 80s? Well, like, what's the, uh, um, like, what's the, what's the quintess, not, not the greatest, what's the quintessential sitcom of the 80s. What, what would you guys answer that? I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer, but what do you... Hmm? Is somebody said Cosby Show? Yeah, absolutely. I remember a lot of Cheers would also be in the conversation. Um, the Cosby Show. I think you're right. I mean, if you, if you look at each decade, there's sort of like, there's, there's some sitcom that's like the quintessential sitcom of that decade. And, and the reason it's the quintessential sitcom of that decade is because not only is it, was it popular, but it's like our idealized picture of who we are. Right? Like the, the Cosby Show, there was this family. They were tight-knit. You know, they, the kids had trouble. They came to dad and mom, and they fixed it. And, you know, they put on fashion shows in the house and did crazy dances and, you know, all this, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was this sort of sense of that a family that, had be, that belonged to each other, that was dedicated to each other, that even if your family was falling apart, your parents were fighting and you and your husband were at odds all the time, you watch the show and you're like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what it should be like. What would you say is the quintessential uh, sitcom of the 90s? Sorry. Seinfeld, Friends. I think that's a conversation personally. Hmm? Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince was sure, absolutely. Anybody else? Think about those sitcoms and what they're about. Friends and Seinfeld. Now, the structure has changed. It's not about the family so much, but it's about a group of friends who you belong to, who accept you no matter what. You steal each other's boyfriends, you cuss each other out, you sleep with each other, then you sleep with them, and back and forth, you're still 
dedicated to each other. There's still a place. It's, you know, by the way, what kind of job do those girls have where they had that giant house in the middle of New York, that giant apartment? Do you know how much that apartment would really cost in the middle of New York? They could not afford it. I'll tell you that. That's how much it would cost. But they live at this giant apartment that they live in that they... That no matter, that may not be your apartment, that, you know, Joey and what's his name live in that shabby apartment across the way. And I don't, I mean, I, you know, what's her name? The blonde haired girl lived in the other apartment off, you know, but they belonged together. You can always have a sense of home. What would you say is the quintessential sitcom of the past 10 years? It gets harder because we went through a dark period of sitcoms where um, there weren't quite as many. I know you have a, I know you have an opinion. I was going to go with the office. The office. I think that was certainly being the conversation. <coughs> I think I think the office. Um, Ray, Ray. Everybody loves everybody loves Ray. Everybody loves Raymond. Um, I also think t- today, how I met your mother. Is in, is in the conversation and the Big Bang Theory. I think those are all, I'm not saying they're great shows, I'm just saying I think they're, the, emer, one of those are going to emerge as the quintessential sitcom of the, here's my point. Look again at those. What are they about? It's about a group of people that I belong to, who I'm connected with, no matter what. I mean, think about the theme of Cheers. It ran for like 16 years, it was like crazy. It ran forever where everybody knows your name. You walk in, Norm walks in, everybody says what? Hey, Norm, hey, everybody says all together, you have a place where you belong. We as humans, that's a long way to get to this. We as humans have a desire for relationships, a desire for community, a group of people that we belong to no matter what, that I can be who I really am, I can be myself in front of them. They know my junk. They know my lug, the, my ba- luggage. They know my ba- ba- my baggage. They know all that stuff, and yet I'm still accepted. Not because of what I'm doing, but because of who I am. Just because I'm a part of the group, and we have that longing, don't we? Don't we? You look at that and say, "Man, I, I long for that." We we desire we're family. That, that, that's. That, it's difficult to understand why in the world would people want to get married. It's hard. It is very difficult to be married. And we live in a society, society today where there is the least amount of pressure that has ever been in America on being married. You don't have to be married or to have sex or to have kids or any of that stuff. You can, you know, but why would you do it? Because we're longing. You know why? Because throughout all eternity, before he even created the heavens and the earth, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were living in perfect relationship and community with each other. Enjoying this, what theologians call this, almost, almost like a cosmic dance with each other. Of enjoying each other and their fellowship with each other and that's what you were created whenever he created you in that image he created that thumbprint for the desire for community upon your heart and soul and that's why you and I long for family and for relationships a group of people that will accept me and I will accept them no matter what but, but 
that's difficult to explain. And then the, the last thing that we'll talk about, there's other things. The last thing we'll talk about tonight is this, this sense of, this sense of, can you imagine, this actually happened with a piece by Beethoven. You find you're a collector and you're rummaging through these different sales and you run, run, run across this piece of music. And at first you don't know what it is and so you, you get around some other people and you start to study it and then there starts to get some excitement because this looks like the work of Beethoven. And it's a piece that nobody's heard before. And so people are like fascinated. And so you, you get somebody who can play and they start to play it and it's beautiful. You can hear like, you can hear the, the notes. I'm not a music guy so I, I would be the wrong person to describe this. But you, you hear like the, the, the fingerprint of Beethoven on it. The way that he would do his melodies and the parts that would go up and then down and the meter and the whole deal. You're like, oh yes, that's definitely. But then it gets to parts where you're like, that part doesn't seem quite right. Like it, it doesn't jive with everything. It's like he's kind of just marking time through this point. Like, like they're just holding serve in these, for these bars. And then something else happens that's awesome. And then this doesn't quite fit with him. And then you start to realize, wait a second. This is a piece that was written for two instruments. And this is only one. And the other piece hasn't been found. And that's exactly what happened. You hear you, the beauty, but it's like part of it is missing. Because there's a piece that, that just doesn't quite satisfy. You'll never be satisfied because nobody can ever recreate what the master would have put in those empty places. And that's what it's like. Jonathan showed them. They just came back from the mountains. And so it's in full color. So Jonathan showed me some pictures of, and some video of looking at the, 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 all the leaves and the colors and the amazing things. And, and there's just a sense when you see something beautiful, like, like it stirs you, it gets you going, but then there's a sense that uh, it doesn't quite scratch the itch. Like it gets the itch going, but it doesn't quite scratch it. Like you think like, if, if I saw this more, like if I lived here, if I built a house on the side of this mountain and had this view every morning, then it would, it would scratch that itch. But you build the house there and it doesn't quite do it. You see the sunset or the sunrise. It's amazing and it stirs your heart and your soul. And you think, man, that's awesome. But yet, it just doesn't quite quench that thirst. You take pictures of it because you want, I want to remember this moment. I want to relive this over and over again. But you had the picture on your phone or as a desktop on your, and it brings back the memory, but it's just a memory. You can't recapture that moment that you spend the rest of your life trying. Why? Here's why. Because all of it is beautiful is a part of the master's concerto that he composed. And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't quite, it gets you going, but it doesn't quite give you the full picture. It doesn't scratch the itch until, until he adds his piece onto it. 
Are, are you tracking what I'm saying? The beauty stirs your heart like it's supposed to because it's a shadow of who he is. But until he is actively working in the midst of it, in your heart and in your life, it doesn't quite do it. It doesn't quite get you there. The beauty is there, but it's not quite there. It's difficult to explain. Here's the deal about all those things about justice, spirituality, community, and beauty, is that we're created to appreciate, live in, and create all of those things. We're created to live in and create justice. He told Adam and Eve, go subdue the earth. That's an active that's active, that's movement going on. It's not just about just picking, like they weren't supposed to just like pick fruit and eat them all day and like just be naked in the garden, though that sounds pretty awesome for a while, but he created them to work. He created them to do things, to, to create, to live in and create justice, to live in and, and, and practice spirituality of this otherness. They were created to live in and to create community and they were created to live in this beautiful creation that he had made and to create beauty, to to paint the scenes that they were looking at and to sing songs about them and to write poetry about it, to to see the one that you love, the, the woman that he made out of man that man looked at and said, wow, that is amazingly beautiful, to write songs about that, to sing to her, to sing about her, to write poetry. He created us to do all of that, but it's been marred, that image that he created us in, that justice, those things that flow from him, that he put the imprint, the DNA inside us, justice, spirituality, community, beauty. He put all of that in us, but something terrible happened. Paradise was lost. We're going to skim this section. It's the, it's the bad news. Look, turn over a couple of chapters in Genesis 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree as in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. We won't even go into um, the nuances of that. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was to delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Well, this, is, this is the bad news. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were shamed. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? But the man said, that woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now look down at verse 22. After he gives uh, a curse, the, the consequences of their actions to the serpent <laughs> and to the woman and to Adam. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like us, like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden toward the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, there's, a, there's a quote, the, the battle of Lake Erie forget the, the general or whoever it was that said it. And he, sent, he, he engaged the enemy in battle and he sent a message back to his commanding officer and he said, we have met the enemy and he is ours. Right? I mean, isn't that awesome? Um, but a cartoonist took that in the 70s and he turned it around a little bit and he said, we've met the enemy and he's us. We've met the enemy and he is us. That we like our father, inherited from our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, we are fallen. Paradise has been lost. This image that God created us in is now a marred image. It's like, have you ever looked through a glass and there's a smudge, there's something wrong, there's some goo or something on the other side and you try to, you try to scratch it off and you you keep scratching and you figure out it's on the other side. I can't get to it. Or, or a, you have a camera lens and you're, you know, there's something in the picture and you keep trying to clean off the lens, but it's still showing up. It's because something's inside. You can't get to it. There's something wrong. You can't quite get there. That's what now we're like. Because that word image means to reflect God. We were created to reflect him in his nature and his character, the sense of justice, the sense of uh, spirituality, community, beauty. We were, sent, we were created to live in those and to create that, but we're marred. And it's just like we see glimpses of it, but we can't quite get there. It's like looking in a funhouse mirror. Or if you buy one of those cheap mirrors from Walmart, it's like $9. You know, it's really great, a cheap mirror, but it, it's like, it's all bendy. And so if you don't have it quite right and you walk up and look at it, you, your head's like shaped like this or, you know, something's, you know, not quite right there. You, that's what it's like. We reflect still these, this image that he created us to create, to, to reflect but it's marred and, and skewed. We, we have this sense of justice, but we don't do it. We have this sense of the, that, that there, we were created for somebody else, by someone else, but 
yet we, and there's this sense that also if we could discover what that is and who that is and could connect with that, that things would be right, but we forget him even when we discover him. Daily, momentarily, moment by moment, we forget. There's this sense that we are to live in community, that there should be a, a group of people that we belong to, like Adam and Eve at the very beginning when God said he created them good, but he said, but it's not good that they dwell alone. So he created Eve for Adam. He created us for community at the very beginning. There's this sense that that's the way that it should be, but yet we turn on each other. We turn on each other in marriage and in family and friendships and relationships. They're always coming together, coming apart, coming together, coming apart. Because there's this sense that though I want that, though I need that, that's why I should be living in. We can't quite get there from here. It's like the the north and north magnets that are just pushing against each other all the time. You push it together for a moment and then it's going to come back apart. And then... The sense of beauty that we were created um, to live in and to reflect and to create beautiful things. But yet, what we do in America is we find beautiful things and we worship them. We find beautiful things, we make them <coughs> ultimate things. Beauty in a person. It's, it's not wrong to, to be beautiful, or to see somebody as, as beautiful and to Enjoy the image of God they were created in in a wholesome way that they were created, beautiful, reflecting Him. And yet, we turn that into something to be worshipped and to be adored and fawned over. We, we, we sit by the sea and we see how beautiful it is and we enjoy the scenery and the moment, the, the birds flying over, overhead and the, the waves coming in. And maybe it's calm and glassy like it was the other day that I saw it or maybe it's wild and tempestuous and it creates in us a sense of awe whatever it is at that moment we see the the moon reflecting on the ocean and and we can't just enjoy it we have to own it I have to own this piece of property I have to live here uh, we don't I, I could really enjoy this if I own this piece of property if I you walk on the mountain trail and you look over into the valley and it's amazing and awe-inspiring and we cannot help but think, man, if I only had a plot of land right here, if I only, we worship the beautiful things. Because they show us something, they stir something, but it's only part of the story. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us. But here's the good news. I'll bring us into it for a landing right here. I'm turn to Colossians chapter one. You know, Adam and Eve did a pretty horrendous job at reflecting the nature and character of God and reflecting His His image. They they kind of they kind of messed that one up. And we do the same thing over and over again. It's the sense of a memory, of an echo, of a voice. But we just can't quite get there from here. And yet, it's the middle of our, of our, of our dream, of our sleepless dream. A man enters into the stage. And he shows us 
who God is. He shows us the image, the voice that we had a sense of a memory of an echo of. The voice shows up. In fact, in John chapter 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And look how Paul describes him in Colossians, verse 15 of chapter 1. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That invisible, that otherness that we can't quite get to, we can't, that itch that we can't quite scratch, that invisible element that we were created for, he came and he imaged that to us. He showed us who that invisible God was. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, whether rule or thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus showed up on the scene in the middle of our waking dream and showed us the image of God. And as you read the Gospels, you read the stories of his life and how he interacted with people, you see somebody who is amazing. You see a man who is both humble and bold. Humble and bold. It's a combination you don't see just by nature. Some people are naturally humble. Some people are naturally bold. But he was both humble and bold. You see a man who came and he mourned with people. When a man shows up and his daughter is home dying, it says that his heart was moved with compassion. He may be the creator of all things, and so he knows everything. Nothing was a surprise to him. But he shows up on the scene with his friend and his friend's sisters, and who has his friend has died, his sisters are mourning and crying, and he cries with them. He mourns with them. He's, his heart is over and over again moved with compassion for the people. And yet you also see a man who comes rejoicing. He gathers and he goes to parties. He, cre- he, he gives his disciples, his his closest disciples, he gives them nicknames. He calls James and John the boys of thunder. That's a pretty cool nickname to get. He's a pretty cool guy. <coughs> he, he, gives, he gives this other dude that's following him the name. It's like Rocky, right? <coughs> He's, he, he shows up at a party where they have been partying for some time, enough time that they have run out of wine. So that's where most Southern Christians would show up and say, all right, it's time to shut this thing down. You guys have gone way too far in this. Jesus shows up, and at the urging of his mother, he turns water into wine. And not just like passable wine, he turns water into great wine. 
And so much so that it throws, it, it blows away the head of the party. The, the wedding director says, wow, this is amazing. You saved the best for last. That's the kind of God that shows up. He comes mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And he marries them together in such a way so that they're not at odds together. That's the kind of Jesus that shows up. That's the image of the invisible God that shows up, this sense of a memory of an echo that we have in our hearts, this longing for beauty, this longing for community, this longing, but this sense that we can't get there from here for, of, of spirituality and, um, and justice. He comes up and embodies all of those things perfectly in harmony at all times. And here's the amazing next part of the story, last part of the story. It's that not only does God show up and shows us the, that image that we're created to, to reflect ourselves, and so when we see it, it resonates with something inside us. But not only does he show up in that way, but then he says to his followers, to his disciples, whenever I leave, whenever I go to my father because I have poured out my life as a payment for your sin debt and I've reunited him, you to him, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live in and dwell in you and among you. So not only have I taken down the wall, not only have I gone on the other side of the glass and cleared away the smudge that was marring the image, but I am sending my Holy Spirit itself to live in you and among you, to empower you to reflect my image like you were created to. And yet, even in a better state than Adam was, and Eve was in the garden, as perfect and good as it was. Adam and Eve were left in the garden alone with the serpent. But now we are left with God. He doesn't show up and walk with us in the cool of the day. He is in us 24 hours a day. And so here's what that means for us as believers. If you're here today and you're a Christian, it means that God has called you to reflect his nature, his image, his character to the community that's around you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and he has empowered you to do so. So here's the question that we'll end with. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? What image are you reflecting? If he has called us to reflect his justice and spirituality, to reflect, his, um, to reflect him in community, to reflect him in the way we appreciate and create beauty and the, the way that we live life on mission, the way that he lived on mission, how are you doing with that? 